Hi everyone and welcome to Traffic Jam. It's Georgia and as always I'm here with Isabel. Hello. Can you guys believe it's already November? Not to stress anybody out, but the time is going by so fast. And I know we're pretty old on the scale anymore, but the older we get, the faster time goes. We are right in the middle of the holiday season too, which is so weird. Halloween is over, Thanksgiving is right around the corner, and bam, it's going to be Christmas, and then it'll be a whole new year. It is just so crazy to me. Also, how have we not paid attention to this being the 11th episode that we're recording? We hit double digits, and we didn't even recognize it. Oh my god, you're right. Like, Honestly, when we first started talking about starting a podcast and putting episodes out about anti-trafficking and related topics, I wasn't entirely sure how far we were going to make it <laughs> or how we would keep up with this. But here we are. We have a whole podcast for MISCO and we just keep going. Speaking of MISCO, let's give an update on what's been going on. Great idea. We really haven't done one of those lately, but we do have a couple projects currently in the works right now. As we have mentioned a few times, we have MISCO U, and we are always looking for new colleges to add on to the program and join the mission to raise awareness about human trafficking and exploitation at the university level. Additionally, we have a Crusaders program which is an effort to bridge the gap between law enforcement and organizations that perform rescue operations and the security tech space to help get resources and supplies directly into the rescuers' hands. We also have a training program in the works that is called the Love Training. And this is a comprehensive approach to equip anybody, uh, law enforcement or the general public, with the abilities to address the issues around human trafficking uh, sensitively and effectively. We are keeping ourselves quite busy over here. Yes, we are. And one way that all of you can join this effort is through word of mouth. Please take the time to share this podcast with your friends and family. And also consider donating to MISCO. Shop on our Etsy page or join us at our fundraising events. As always, the links will be in the episode description and we will do our best to keep everybody updated on the fundraising events we will be hosting in 2024. But for now, go grab yourself a traffic jam or a MISCO hoodie to keep yourself warm. We are in the middle of the fall and winter is coming right around the corner. You can find those at our Etsy shop. All right, guys, this is our update for now. But be sure to follow our social media pages to stay up to date on what's going on with MISCO. Georgia. Are you ready to get into today's topic? Yes, I'm really excited to dive into this because today we are going to break down what is known about Jeffrey Epstein and his infamous island. I'm sure by now everyone is familiar with the name Jeffrey Epstein and we all know about Epstein's island, but I think we should backtrack and talk a little bit about who this guy was. I totally agree. So we all know Jeffrey Epstein was this super wealthy guy because he owned a private island and he had his own private jet. But he wasn't really somebody who came from a family of money or, you know, like inherited it. Uh, he was born in a middle class family in Brooklyn, New York. His mother was a school aide and his father was a groundskeeper and a gardener 
for the New York City Department of Parks and Recreation. He was the oldest sibling of two. He had a younger brother, and he was just considered to be an average boy. However, he was also noted to be extremely intelligent. He even made money as a kid by tutoring his classmates. And he graduated high school at just 16 years old. So do the math, he skipped two grades. He did go to college, but he never finished his degree. He studied math and physics while he was in college, though. Epstein got a job teaching at a private school in New York City, the Dalton School. He taught physics and math like he studied in college. Um, he was known for his charisma. And he was also known to treat his students more like friends than, you know, that teacher-student relationship. Uh, allegedly, he forged inappropriate relationships with female students, often seen flirting with them and giving them more attention than their male counterparts. He was eventually dismissed by the school for poor job performance, but then was offered a job at Bear Stearns by one of his students' parents. Bear Stearns was a um, Wall Street investment bank. And when he worked at Bear Stearns, he was able to climb the ladder quickly, and he became a partner in just four years. However, he was asked to leave the company because he was found guilty of a Regulation D violation, but then he started his own consulting firm, which eventually failed. Um, He was also hired as a consultant for another firm that eventually collapsed too. He's just not on a good streak here. No, he wasn't, but he eventually goes up. He found a financial management company called J. Epstein & Co. in 1982, and this had great success. Through this lucrative career, Epstein had so much money to spend, and he had no issue spending it. He began socializing with celebrities and elites, and he bought beautiful mansions across the country. So along with money comes power and opportunities to abuse that power. There was, I actually watched a documentary on Netflix called Jeffrey Epstein, Filthy Rich. And it's like a mini docuseries, four episodes, they're about an hour each. And the documentary outlines this, you know, brief history of Epstein um, and how he got into, you know, the job that landed him a lot of his money and starts talking about the abuse that occurred in the late 90s and early 2000s and reports uh, from victims who were willing to come forward and contribute to police investigations regarding Jeffrey Epstein. So I highly recommend the documentary for anybody who is interested in learning more about this topic. With that being said, Jeffrey Epstein um, was found to abuse probably over 100 girls. A lot of them, uh, some of them even being, you know, as young as 14, most of them under 16. Now, the documentary also really focused on girls that were living in Palm Beach, Florida, and the abuse that occurred to them. For reference, these, were our, these are where a lot of our examples um, are going to be coming from. In a lot of the reports, the girls are from low to middle class families. They don't have a lot of opportunities themselves. They're very vulnerable. Some are from broken homes. Most of them did not see themselves as being able to have a lot of opportunities in their lives or even getting out of their own class structure that they were born into. 
Now, Jeffrey Epstein was easily able to exploit this background. Um, I quickly want to mention, too, it was Jeffrey Epstein and his girlfriend, Ghislaine Maxwell, uh, working hand-in-hand. And they would find some of these girls, approach them with a very similar type of story, right? So, you know, a lot of these girls, if they're 16, they're starting to think about their future in college. And so they would get approached by Epstein or Glenn, you know, saying, I can help you build your college resume uh, or your college application. I think, you know, you need some more guidance and you need to do a few notable things. And he would offer to send them on a trip, for example, like to Africa. So these girls would meet uh, Epstein and Galen at their house. They would fly to their house in New Mexico. And when they got there, they realized they were by themselves. They kind of initially were under the pretense that maybe there would be some other people, other students there, um, but it was just them. And, you know, that night when they get there, Galen would come up to them and say, you need to massage Epstein's feet. And, you know, they kind of all say, well, we thought this was kind of uncomfortable, weird. You know, we were really young. We thought, you know, maybe guess this was normal. But she would teach them how to massage his feet. And then, you know, that night or morning, Epstein would come into their bedroom and cuddle with them and, like, touch them inappropriately. And for some, you know, the abuse would go even farther than that. These girls were shocked, horrified, were not, you know, they were under the pretense that this person was going to help them with their future, that they were special, that he cared about them. And then turns out, you know, they're flown away from their home and abused. And then they're sent on their trip. And they have, you know, and it's everything that they, that trip is everything they had expected and an opportunity they never would have thought they would have gotten uh, to travel internationally. They have this man who was able to give them everything they thought they would never see in life. And he was able to snap his fingers and make it happen for them. So in their minds, they're almost, I shouldn't say in their minds, but in a way they might have felt indebted to him because he was able to do so much for them that he felt as if it was his right to abuse them and to take advantage of them. And they were so young, they were probably way too afraid to say no. And there are some other scenarios where there were several girls who were interested in pursuing a career as like a masseuse, um, or they were just looking for a job. And he would offer them a job as like a masseuse. And so again, under the pretense that I will help you get your, you know, masseuse's license um, or certification, they would go to his home and think they were just going to learn how to give him a massage. Galen, again, would instruct them. Turns out, though, he would be, like, completely nude at first, like, laying on his stomach, but would then turn over, which made them super uncomfortable, and he would be, like, touching himself while they were massaging him. Again, or, like, in other situations, you know, Glenn would be there, too, and they would make, and they would make the girls undress while they were giving the massages a lot of the times, and sometimes, again, it would end in rape. Now, 
to help grow this network. What a lot of investigators and lawyers were calling it was like this like pyramid scheme of like child abuse. Because not only were they working as masseuses, but if girls brought their friends, they would then get money um, or paid for bringing their friends to be with Jeffrey as well. So then there's like, you know, cases where a girl will approach her friend and say, hey, come with me. I'm going to this house to do massages and we're going to make some money. And, you know, they're kind of all a little bit reluctant at first and they agree to go with their friend. And then, you know, the initial friend who invited them ends up leaving. And now that girl is left there by themselves and told, all right, you need to undress. And then they end up getting abused. And it's this like recurring cycle. And I'm sure a lot of it had to do with fear as one aspect of it. And then the incentive to make more money and to potentially even be skipped in a turn of abuse in a way that would mentally allow somebody to go and recruit somebody that they know to become involved in this pyramid scheme of child abuse. Because I can never imagine, one, being in that situation, two, inviting somebody that I know and care about to also become abused. Like There has to be some type of tiered system of manipulation, fear, etc. that enabled these girls to do that to one another. Of course, I mean, because they try to build trust and really, really present these girls with opportunities for their future. A lot of them need a job. Here is a job with this person who is really wealthy and has a lot of connections, promising things like, you know, trips to help build their college application, getting their masseuse certification. And so, you know, initially it's like this man is going to do a lot. But at the same time, they end up getting trapped in this cycle of abuse. And a lot of them, when they're talking about it, they're like, I didn't really know why I was like going back. That's a really interesting point to make because now when they're able to actually exist outside of that abusive um, cycle and look back at it, they can't justify it knowing what they had been through. But in the moment, maybe it was just the safest option for them. And, you know, it would pay off eventually because eventually I will go to college. Eventually I will have my career and or my masseuse certification. And this will all be worth it if I can just suck it up and get through it in a way. Like they turned on some type of survival mechanism to turn off all the bad and just put on tunnel vision to see the future. Because again, you know, you recruited girls from, a you know, a lot of times, again, not all, but many from a similar background of not having a lot of opportunity or not really seeing their life going very far. And so that kind of kept that incentive. There was actually a story about um, a young girl who was actually working at uh, Mar-a-Lago and Glenn Maxwell was there visiting um, and they ended up talking and, uh, And this girl had aspirations to become a masseuse. And she's like, you know, I think I might, like, I I think I know somebody. I have a position for you. And later, Glenn, you know, contacts this girl uh, to come and work for Jeffrey, saying, come here and work for us. And then we will send you, I want to say it was Thailand. It was somewhere in Asia to then get your, like, masseuse certification. So she went 
thinking this is great. Somebody's going to actually like, they're taking interest in me um, and they're going to really help me uh, move forward in my career. And she goes there. And again, it's that she ends up trapped in this, you know, same abuse that all these other girls are facing where, you know, they think they're just going to learn to be a masseuse. Glenn is teaching them. Um, the way a lot of times she would word it to them is teach them how to please Jeffrey. But then again, it ends up, they end up slowly having to do like a little bit more and more of things that they are uncomfortable with. And then it's just full on fledged abuse. Um, now, eventually, she's like, you know what? You guys promised me this. Like, I need you to make good on it. They send her to, again, I think it was Thailand. Um, to get her certification and while she's there she ends up actually meeting somebody that she falls in love with uh he's from australia i believe and they actually end up getting married and moving to australia so she is like you know what this is my time like to be free like i am in a completely different country so she you know emails jeffrey and is like i'm engaged now um i'm not coming back essentially and so she has been like living in australia and she's actually one of the people who has been so heavily involved in all the investigations against him and speaking out against Epstein. And she's done a lot of work with that. So it's a super interesting story. I mean, she's really dedicated a lot of her life helping, you know, herself and all the other victims get justice for what they had to endure. All I have to say is round of applause to that girl, now woman, because she took a really, really bad situation and once she saw the tiniest opportunity to get out and completely flip her life, she did. Mm-hmm. She didn't go back saying and explain it in person and risk getting trapped there. She just said, I'm out of there. You're not going to, hopefully you don't come and get me, but I'm getting married. I don't need you anymore. I don't need your money. I'm going to be perfectly fine on my own. Like she was able just to break out of that cycle on her own. Mm-hmm. Yes, the trip to Thailand helped her get there, but she used that to her advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, and they promised her that. So now, okay, so there have been, you know, several girls, you know, 14, 15, 16, um, 17, all getting abused uh, by Epstein. And some of them actually did make police reports and started talking to the police about what they were experiencing. And obviously, you know, they hear like child abuse and they take it very seriously and so they start an investigation against Epstein this is like in the early 2000s uh we're talking and you know they're trying to find um essentially trying to build a really strong case against him so they're keeping the investigation kind of on the down low it's taking a long time it's taking them I think years they are trying to find enough girls to come forward who are willing to speak out. You know, not everybody was. And just trying to build this case. And eventually they think they have it. They got the search warrant to raid his house. So they did that. Again, they had to keep everything so like under wraps. And that's kind of why also like part of the reason why it took so long. Because they didn't want to start to tip him off that like they were coming. They wanted to like surprise him. And that way, you know, he wouldn't escape. They had all this evidence. And they were going to prosecute him. Um, you know, they had, like, several girls had come forward. And it's the day of the trial. We're now in 2008. And they're in court. The lawyers go up to the stand to speak with the judge. And then all of a sudden, there was a deal that had been reached. Jeffrey Epstein and his co-conspirators 
Uh, they were not charged federally. On the local level, Jeffrey Epstein was sentenced to jail for 18 months. They threw in like that little bit of jail time and like that was it. It was over. And everybody was really like shocked and surprised. They, like People didn't see a deal coming for somebody who was abusing children. And then, you know, he's now has to carry out this 18 month sentence. Well, turns out for six days out of the week, he gets to be like on like a work like leave. So for 12 hours of the day, he doesn't actually have to be in jail. He just has to report back to jail at night. And turns out the jail time was only for 13 months instead of 18. But people were trying to figure out how this deal was ever reached. And it was they were extremely secretive about it at the prosecutor's office. They didn't really share a whole ton of information. That was just it. And the victims, rightfully so, felt they never got justice that day after, you know, like all of that coming forward, sharing their stories. And that was it. It was kind of like, it's kind of like a slap in the face almost. A slap in the face to the victims, but just a slap on the wrist to Epstein. The police chief at the time was quoted saying, this was not a he said, she said situation. This was 50 something she's and one he. And all the she's basically told the same story. So, As Isabel explained, there were mountains of evidence and statements by witnesses who were telling the stories of their abuse. And Epstein got nothing. He got a slap on the wrist. You could still go to work 18 months, but knocked it down to 13. The only thing that really happened to him was he had to register as a level three sex offender starting in the year 2008. This is a lifetime designation, meaning he was considered high risk to reoffend, which we will go into further detail on how he continued to reoffend. Well, I think something too before we move on, uh, it's important to note during this time with like the whole trial, to help mitigate the situation, people were referring to the girls as child prostitutes, which is absurd. Child prostitutes are not a thing. It's child abuse. But with language, it can really like reshape the perspective of the situation. And so, you know, they were just, they were essentially trying to build a case that like these girls were willingly there, which is not the case. Um, They were like manipulated and abused and they were tricked. Yeah, that's just disgusting that child prostitution is a term that people even considered using, it shouldn't be out there because like you just said, I'm going to reiterate it to really emphasize it's child abuse. You don't get to pick and choose language that justifies the scenario because abusing children is never justified. Never. Now, let's bring in this infamous island. Epstein's Island is actually called Little St. James Island. It's located in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Epstein was known to call it Little St. Jeff, while others refer to it as the Pedophile Island. He purchased this 75-acre private island in 1998 from a venture capitalist for just under $8 million. Just under $8 million. That's nothing, right? And in 2007, he began remodeling the island, destroying natural wildlife to construct this private oasis. I'm going to paint the picture. 
the main compound doubled in size and it featured this big mansion that had outdoor terraces connecting to the pool. It had its own desalination system, which for those of you who don't know, because I know that's not a common term, I didn't know it. It's basically a system that makes salt water safe to drink. There were additionally satellite pictures of the island reveal a network of terraces, cottages, beach houses, huts, pools, docks, utility buildings, a helipad, and tennis courts. And these were all connected by palm tree lined roads. And to move around the island, Epstein and his guests were escorted around on golf carts, like country club style. And I do want to note, there was also some commentary about this really odd blue and white striped temple looking building that had golden statues on it, but nobody really knew what the purpose of it was. When you have that much money, you can just have temples on your island. Why not, right? I mean, it sounds beautiful, like a luxury resort. Which definitely had to be part of the inspiration. And as we all know, the big scandal around Epstein's Island um, is the accusations that it was the hub of a major sex trafficking ring where guests would visit the island and abuse young women. So we're going to go ahead and dig into, you know, as much of this as we can in one episode. A typical day in the life on the island, I guess we can try to get into. It was reported that Epstein visited this island two to three times a month, and he stayed several days at a time. Employees of the island said he would stroll the island in his flip-flops while meditation music played from the speakers. Staff said there were always women and girls around, either on the arm of Epstein and his guests, or they were lounging around the pools. This is a quote, some were Some were, quote-unquote, suspiciously young, and they dressed in little to no clothing. A couple that used to run the island for Epstein, uh, they were quoted uh, saying these things about the young girls on the island. Quote, they looked like they had stepped out of an underwear catalog. They walked around with very few clothes on or lounged around by the pool with nothing on. It was like that most of the time. I was concerned about their ages. A few of them looked very young, and I couldn't help but wonder if their mothers knew they were there, end quote. And air traffic staff uh, were quoted saying the following. On multiple occasions, I saw Epstein exit his helicopter, stand on the tarmac in full view of my tower, and board his private jet with children, female children. My colleagues and I definitely talked about how we didn't understand how this guy was still allowed to be around children. We didn't say anything because we figured law enforcement was doing their job. That is regrettable, but we really didn't even know who to tell or if anyone really cared. There'd be girls that looked like they could be in high school. They looked very young. They were always wearing college sweatshirts. It seemed like camouflage. That's the best way to put it. I could see him with my own eyes. I compared it to seeing a serial killer in broad daylight. I called it the face of evil. It was like he was flaunting it. One thing worth mentioning about these quotes is that his staff was sworn to secrecy. They were told to stay out of Epstein's sight while they worked. They were forbidden to go into his two offices in the main manor. 
And it was even reported that they were given a 59-page house rules manual, which told the staff to be deaf, dumb, and blind. They were never to make eye contact with Epstein, and they all signed confidentiality statements that banned them from talking to law enforcement. So when we're looking at these quotes, we're seeing that staff noticed these young girls. They noticed them often. They noted that they were kind of being camouflaged wearing the college sweatshirts, maybe to make them seem older on the surface, but everybody knew deep down they were very young and that they were children, but they didn't seem, they didn't think they could report it or they didn't know who to report it to, or they did the worst and made assumptions that law enforcement had it completely under control, which they didn't. Right. And I'm sure, you know, there was a lot of fear surrounding, you know, reporting Epstein because he had so much power. And I'm sure they were worried, you know, that their job depended on it. But again, like hearing some of these quotes, it really just sounds like, honestly, like a lot of excuses uh, to not say anything. Yeah, the one that stuck out to me the most was I could see him with my own eyes. I compared it to seeing a serial killer in broad daylight. I called it the face of evil. It was like he was flaunting it. That, to me, says that Epstein didn't care what anybody thought or what they saw because he knew he could get away with this. And I think we talk, when we talk about trafficking, like when we've talked about it in, you know, before, we talk about how one of the reasons why it is so dangerous is that it is one of those crimes that truly does operate in daylight and somehow largely goes unnoticed. And it is a lot larger of an issue than many people realize. Absolutely. And we do see how difficult trials and prosecutions of these types of crimes are because it's hard to find all this evidence. But in the Epstein case, we saw that they had all of this evidence supposedly and weren't able to carry through with it. And and so now about all these accusations about the island being a sex trafficking ring, there are um, several stories from girls who were sent to this island. Um, you know, they were sent under the pretense of come to my, you know, luxury island on a vacation. And, you know, for a 14, 15, 16-year-old girl, why wouldn't you want that opportunity? Um, you know, and sometimes they get to go with friends. So it was like going to this like fancy island um, and they would get to go in the private jet and they would get there and you know again it's like that night the whole routine started they'd have to go ahead and like massage jeffrey and it then turned into abuse and in some cases too they would get approached saying what you do to jeffrey you have to do to him and so girls report other people being on the island who they were also forced to sleep with as well And just imagine how terrifying that must be to be stuck on an island. You can't escape. There's nowhere to go. And you're being forced to have sex with several people. There's actually a story of a girl who tried to escape the island when she was 15. She just tried to run away. She was going to jump in the water and swim to any island but Little St. Jeff. But Epstein sent out a team, I believe, and they were able to 
stop her from leaving. And then once they detained her, basically, they put her in a room, threatened her, and continued to abuse her. So her story was actually one of the ones in the documentary I watched. And she was interviewed, um, you know, and sharing the story. And she said, you know, she ran to like a different part of the island and was standing there at the edge thinking about just jumping into the water and just trying to get away. And then all of a sudden, like Jeffrey was there, like he had found her. And then, you know, she says that she, she truly realized she must constantly be being watched because he found her so easily and then brought, like forced her back. That's like something you see in a horror movie where, you know, the person's running away from the serial killer and they turn a corner and the killer is right there. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what I'm picturing. Now, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, well, like, who were some of these people that were there on the island? Um I hate to do this, but stay tuned to the end of the episode and we're going to kind of talk about what we know so far about, you know, the list of people that were there or, you know, suggested to be there. So we're definitely going to come back to that. Keep that in your mind. But the one thing I want to point out before we move on is that Epstein actually bought the neighboring island to his. It was 165 acres, Great St. James in 2016. For more than $20 million. And this was just to help prevent like unwelcomed guests from like speculating about what was going on on the island and to like give him more privacy, essentially. I know he had a very lucrative and successful career, but this is a really expensive secret to keep. All right, so coming back to the trials. In 2008, justice clearly was not served and Epstein walked away with a slap on the wrists. Over the years... There have been over 100 accusers slash survivors that have come forward to tell their stories of the abuse they suffered. More accusations started in July 2009 when Epstein was released from his 13-month prison stay. This prompted a legal fight for over a decade before Epstein was arrested in New York City on July 6, 2019 after flying in from Paris on one of his private jets. Now... You know, when prosecutors were exploring a way to reopen this case, essentially this all goes back to that secret deal we were talking about earlier in that the survivors or the victims of Jeffrey Epstein were not included in this deal. And so it was deemed that the trial could actually be reopened against him. And that is what happened in 2019. There was also a journalist for the Miami Herald who really took initiative to dig deeper into the story and, you know, how so many girls had come forward alleging abuse and rape and, you know, no federal charges stuck. Uh, A series of articles explored the deal in which the reporter had over 60 women speak of their abuse by Epstein. And this was also what is contributed to have sparked a federal investigation in Manhattan, New York. So again, like, kind of going back, you have, you know, people just really shedding to light and bringing back up this, you know, 2008 deal that really discluded uh, the victims. Like, so now we got a trial. It's getting reopened. People are excited. They're going to actually be able to approach him 
and confront him and share the ways that um, he essentially negatively impacted their life and that and talk about the harm that he caused. Just 35 days after his arrest, Jeffrey Epstein was found dead in his jail cell on August 10th, 2019. Now, the official investigation says he committed suicide, but there are those who speculate that it was a homicide and that he did not kill himself. There's actually, like, there was a lot of conspiracies surrounding his death, kind of going back to the island and the fact that, you know, there were all of these co-conspirators or other people involved. Some people suggest that um, somebody from the outside who also engaged in abuse um, of these young girls uh, with Epstein, maybe like orchestrated uh, somebody, you know, on the inside killing Epstein. There was actually, I think, like a, a medical report, like a coroner's report examining like the jaw and saying it was not really consistent uh, with like a hanging. And they do say that the cameras stopped working and the prison guard fell asleep. I'm sure if you remember those mm-hmm. allegations, too. So, either way, Epstein, you know, dies partway through the trial. Again, the victims, survivors, they never get to actually address Epstein. It just ends um, for the second time. So, it almost seems like this, you know, this man really, he, he never got brought to justice. But like the, a lot of the survivors expressed that disappointment that, you know, they thought they were so close to coming to be able to address him to get justice. And he somehow was able to escape it for the second time. Now, Epstein's estate um, has paid out about like $150 million in restitutions uh, to more than like 125 victims. Um, so I believe, you know, some money was uh, distributed in reparations to victims. However, there was also something about him like moving a lot of his wealth into the name of somebody else before he died, which is also suspicious in order to like avoid that or to keep it. Nonetheless, though, some money has gone out. And included in that money is J.P. Morgan Chase. The bank just reached a class action settlement with survivors of Epstein's Island. There was a lawsuit filed against J.P. Morgan suggesting that they knew about Epstein's abuse of young children and women, and they continued to provide him loans and withdraw large amounts of cash during the years of 1998 to 2013. And the bank obviously denied knowing about what Epstein was doing, and the settlement is pending court approval. But the U.S. Virgin Islands also has a similar lawsuit against J.P. Morgan going on right now at the time of this recording. Additionally, Deutsche Bank in Germany has agreed to pay $75 million to Epstein survivors in another lawsuit filed stating uh, the lender knowingly benefited from Epstein's uh, trafficking ring. Uh, these settlements are all as of uh, 2023, so we can only predict uh, that perhaps more banks and more individuals We'll be writing big checks in the future. And obviously, we cannot talk about Jeffrey Epstein without talking about Glenn Maxwell. So Glenn Maxwell, which we had mentioned earlier as Jeffrey's girlfriend, 
She was charged on July 2nd, 2020 as Jeffrey Epstein's co-conspirator in the human trafficking ring. They actually couldn't find her at first, but then they raided a house in New Hampshire that she was in. So she was going to be placed on trial. So I actually watched a second documentary on Netflix called Glenn Maxwell, uh, Filthy Rich, uh, that I also highly recommend. But she was then placed on trial after Epstein um, was found dead, potentially facing 35 years in jail. And everybody's like big question was, Will money and power stand in the way of justice again? The Maxwell trial brings out more of the details of the case since Epstein died before the findings ever really hit the courtroom. Another really big thing with her trial was, um, and again, we've talked about in, you know, our podcast, there is this like perception uh, that a lot of perpetrators are men. But again, that's not the case. There are also Uh, women perpetrators and so this really brought out the female perpetrator and the role uh, that she actually played in co-conspiracy with Epstein because too there was a lot of debate about whether or not she was involved or not because she had been claiming that she had no idea this was going on and there were a lot of people that believed her she was a very likable person she was very energetic and she was very um, social And so she was continuing to claim she had no idea that this was going on. And I think a lot of people probably didn't suspect her because, again, when you think about traffickers, a lot of times people think about men. It's hard to imagine, like, women doing this to other women. And so that was a big deal with this case, was showing, like, her role in grooming uh, these girls. And it was also probably easier for these girls to trust her because Mm -hmm. that misconception of why would a woman do this to young girls? Why would a girl turn against the girls? But Glenn's role in this entire scheme was that she introduced the girls to Epstein. She would find them because she knew what he liked. And then she coached them on how to please him. Supposedly... Epstein needed to have three orgasms a day, and Maxwell would explain to the girls that I could not keep up with his needs. I think this was actually like a thing that, like, they claim like a doctor like told him or something like that. Like they tried to make some official thing that he needed to have three orgasms a day. Like it's a medical issue, mm-hmm. exactly. It's disgusting. But. Glenn didn't even acknowledge that these girls were human beings, and she called them trash. So their methods of recruitment were taking advantage of girls in vulnerable situations. As we had mentioned earlier, they used their wealth to gift to the girls. They abused, so the girls felt indebted to them. But if the girls they sought after were not in vulnerable situations, they used modeling opportunities, careers, and different contracts. Again, we, we've touched on this before, but we're just bringing it back. And they also took the tactic of rewarding vulnerable girls who recruited new ones with extra cash to bring their friends in. But there was one survivor who told CBS News that Epstein kept a list of underage girls who were in or near the Virgin Islands to traffic to Little St. James. So he had a whole recruiting list of who he wanted. Now, Glenn, she was denied bail uh, during her trial because she was determined to be a flight risk 
and because crimes against minors are taken so seriously. And so there was like a unique kind of delicacy to this situation. She really tried to uh, repair her image during this time by pursuing a cause of trying to save the ocean just to try to shift her image from being, you know, Jeffrey Epstein's former girlfriend to now, you know, having this huge cause and she would go out and speak on the importance of our oceans. But still, you know, the trial continued and what was so important was that the girls who were abused by Epstein and Galen, um, who are now women, were able to take the stand and share their experience to the judge who listened to them. Uh, These women had powerful, gut-wrenching stories um, to tell of how they were coerced into sex trafficking and faced the abuse that they did for years. Uh, One victim said that Epstein and Galen approached her when she was just 14 years old at a summer camp in 1994. And she was abused on a bi-weekly basis. And she even stated that uh, Galen sometimes even participated in the abuse. Another victim who was raped by her own grandfather at just four years old and had a mother with addiction and substance abuse problems was neglected by her own family. She dropped out of school in the seventh grade and she was recruited by another victim at the time. The recruiter told her that she could make money by massaging her wealthy friend. And in 2001, she arrived at one of the mansions and Glenn instructed the girl to take her back to the massage room and show her what to do. This survivor claims she was paid hundreds of dollars to massage Epstein over 100 times until she got quote-unquote too old. She also recalled Glenn telling her that she had a great body for Epstein and his friends, and then Glenn grabbed her breasts. Many other survivors took the stands or had legal teams represent them without having to face the courtroom themselves at the trials, and finally were able to tell their truths and seeking the justice they never got due to Epstein's untimely death. Glenn was charged with five uh, counts of uh, sex charges, including sex trafficking. There was a verdict of guilty, and with how many counts that she was charged with, she could be in prison for 65 years. I think officially she actually got 20 years, and attorneys uh, after the trial have filed uh, to appeal the verdicts. So we will definitely see what happens there. Okay, I told you guys you had to wait, but it's time. One of the most commonly asked questions in regard to Epstein's Island is, like, who were the guests that were on this island? And why has nobody else been held accountable? We know from uh, survivor statements and employee comments that Epstein was not the only one um, sexually abusing underage girls. And this has been, you know, one of the biggest news stories um, in a very long time. So, I mean, let's just say it. Where is this list? This is the question we all deserve an answer to. As a public, we deserve to know who was traveling to this island to abuse children it's important right now that we're going to emphasize children. A lot of these girls were as young as 12 years old, and it just doesn't feel right to call them minors or child prostitutes. When we use the term children, it gets the point across further of how young they really were at the time of their recruitment and abuse. 
Epstein's circle was filled with elites who were uh, wealthy and powerful. Uh, we know he traveled around the world making connections. So that leaves, you know, the list of people that could have potentially been uh, involved endless. One of the articles I read actually suggested that Epstein's Island was not the only leg in this sex trafficking operation. And they suggested that similar operations exist in London, Paris, Tangier, Granada, St. Louis, Palm Beach, Atlantic City, and more. But I personally didn't go far enough to see investigations into these locations specifically, but maybe in due time we will. Hopefully, and hopefully we get a confirmed list of guests uh, to this island as well. Unfortunately, this list has not been released yet. Um, however, there are accusations of several people uh, that we can go ahead and share um, that is out there. From what we found, for instance, Prince Andrew was accused uh, to participate um, he actually settled a lawsuit in February with a survivor claiming, you know, she was 17 um, when Andrew raped her. You know, and talking about London, there was a story of a girl who went with Epstein and Galen uh, to London, uh, and Prince Andrew was there as well, and she talks about how it was an amazing experience. She got to meet Prince Andrew, and they went out partying, and that night went back to um, Epstein's house in London, and, you know, she got a photo of her next to Prince Andrew. And they're standing, Glenn is in the background, and they're kind of standing right outside of a bedroom. She gets her picture, and then they put the camera away. And, you know, and then they say, now you have to do to him what you do to Jeffrey. And Prince Andrew then proceeds to abuse her. People have brought up this instance to him. And he has denied it, saying he, you know, has no recollection of this. And they show him the picture. And they're like, but this is you, like, next to this girl. Um, and, again, he still says he has no memory of it. However, you know, on the track of, you know, Glenn getting uh, charged with guilty, uh, Prince Andrew was stripped of his royal title because of the situation surrounding Epstein. I just thought of um, Suits, because I know you watch Suits, too is you don't go to court unless you're going to win. <laughs> he settled a lawsuit mm -hmm. probably out of the courtroom because he knew he wasn't winning. Mm -hmm. And other names of reported guests include Stephen Hawking, Lawrence Krauss, Chris Tucker, Kevin Spacey, Les Wexner, Naomi Campbell, and Peter Mandelson. Bill Clinton was another name thrown around, but he denies ever being on the island. And Donald Trump is another name that's been thrown around, but there is no confirmation of him ever being on the island either. I will say there is that photograph of Bill Clinton being in Jeffrey Epstein's private plane. So there are a lot of suggestions thrown out um, into the universe, but there has not been like a definitive list of guests hosted on the island. Um, in the years Epstein was the host, there are articles that will give names of people he was associated with, but there really is no definitive list. The fact that these investigations have been going on for years and years, and we still don't have answers to this very important question, is pretty sickening. We can try to give the benefit of the doubt that investigators are doing their 
best to thoroughly dig through and investigate people on an individual basis. But at the end of the day, there hasn't been any rush to put any more people behind bars after Glenn. All right, we're going to mix it up a little bit today. Georgia, do you want to go ahead and give us our myth? Yes, I do. Today's myth is that rape does not happen that often. False. According to Resilience, which is a Chicago-based nonprofit, Isabel's hometown. Woo! Let's go, Chicago. <laughs> best city in the U.S. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, this is what we say. It's smaller than New York, but bigger than Boston. So it's like the perfect size. <laughs> Once you get past all the the gun violence and the shootings and the robberies and the fact that all the grocery stores are leaving. Yeah, great. Exactly. You know, I feel like, I think it has what? Isn't the crime, though? I think the crime is safer than New York and Boston. It might be. I'm not really sure. I don't know. The media really makes Chicago out to be horrible. I have always felt safe every time I go. But you do have to be careful everywhere. Anyway... This nonprofit is dedicated to healing and empowering sexual assault survivors. There is an average of 293,066 victims, ages 12 or older, of rape and sexual assault every year in the U.S. If you break that down by the numbers, this means that one sexual assault occurs every 107 seconds. And I think, too, I mean, what's so disturbing is that this is only considering starting from the age of 12. And as we know, I mean, infants are abused. And so this number is actually a lot larger. um, And there's so many cases that are unreported. So that even exacerbates it even more. And even too, you know, with this episode and talking about like Epstein and, you know, quotes talking about how he was able to essentially operate in plain sight and flaunt it. Like it happens right before our eyes. It's disturbing. So it's important that everybody keeps in mind that while rape and sexual abuse is such a difficult thing to grasp. It does happen so often. And we really do need to be open to talking about it and willing to listen to survivors and their stories. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. We really appreciate it if you've made it this far. Uh, please be sure to go ahead, um, follow our podcast, um, as well as our social media pages that will be linked. Uh, tell your friends and family, send them this episode um, so they can hear it too. Um, and we really appreciate you. We'll see you guys in two weeks.